Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hey, don't worry, you are still in the right place. We have new music here on the Farm Traveler podcast. Thought it'd be about time to kind of swap it up, get something really cool. That is all thanks to Brody Mulliken. So he made us a custom song or some custom jingles for the podcast. If you want to check him out, he is on Instagram at at Brody Mulliken, an old student of mine back when I was teaching in Atlantic High School. I was friends with him and was like, hey, you should use him. I was like, all right, cool. So new music, which is awesome. So anyway, today is episode 38 and our guest today is Jake Levin. So Jake is a butcher. He's going to talk to us about his butchery work, what he's doing to kind of educate people on how exactly their meat is processed and where it comes from. He's also got a new book out called Smokehouse Handbook, Comprehensive Techniques and Specialty Recipes for Smoking Meat, Fish, and Vegetables. So it's a really cool conversation we're going to have. I'm always curious about learning like, you know, like cooking techniques with meat and also like how the whole butchery process works and what are some thoughts. Because you know when it comes to animal ag, there's a lot of activists out there that kind of think it's cruel and all that stuff. So Jake's going to talk about his viewpoint on it and what kind of he does with his educational opportunities. So really hope you enjoy it. This is episode 38 with Jake Levin. All right, well, welcome to the Farm Traveler Podcast, Jake Levin. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you for having me. Hey, absolutely. Thanks for being on. So you're a butcher. You, I found you on Instagram called The Roving Butcher, which is super, super cool. So before we kind of dive into that, tell us about your background and kind of what you're up to now. Sure. So uh, I've been a butcher for uh, almost 10 years now. Um, my sort of path to becoming a journey, to becoming a butcher is a little, um, you know, unusual or, or not a straight line. Uh, I studied art as an undergraduate at Wesleyan University and um, moved to New York City to sort of live and work in the art world and did that for about five years and um, started to sort of get turned off of working in the art world and felt like it was um, negatively affecting my relationship to making art. And so I started to explore um, different career paths and uh, I'd always loved cooking and food and um, 
a butcher shop had just opened up a whole animal butcher shop had just opened up down the block from me and I had sort of become obsessed with the shop and realized uh, that that could be a, you know, an interesting path for me. I, I knew I didn't want to, didn't want to be a chef or couldn't be a chef. I just didn't have the right sort of personality and, and um, it was the wrong kind of job for me, but I loved retail and I loved, working with my hands and I love meat. And so butchering seemed like a, a more obvious route to take. And so um, at the same time, I was also uh, applying to graduate school to get my master's in fine arts. And I was really lucky to get into uh, the master's programs. That was my first choice at Bard College, which uh, just happened to be across the river, the Hudson River from uh, a butcher shop that had an apprenticeship program that had come recommended to me. And so I was able to both uh, become a graduate student and apprentice as a butcher. And um, as soon as I started my apprenticeship, I knew I had found something that I, I really loved and wanted to pursue. Um, and so that's what I've been doing for the last uh, nine years. And um, so today I work for a farm uh, in East Chatham, New York called Raven and Boar, and I process all their pork farm, pig farm, and I process all their pigs uh, into fresh cuts, sausage, uh, and bacon, different uh, value-added roasts, pate, riettes, um, and soon we'll be doing some dry-cured charcuterie. And then on top of that, I do my work as a roving butcher, um, which is at this point mostly doing educational work. So I do workshops and demos uh, with various partnering with various farms and educational institutes and um, farm organizations. So I've worked with NOFA, which is the Northeast Organic Farmers Association, uh, the New England Lives Southern New England Livestock Institute, um, Hancock Shaker Village, which is a wonderful sort of living museum here in the Berkshires in Massachusetts where I live, and then various farms. Cool. That, that really does seem like a really cool background. Uh, you, you said you come from an art background and that was your kind of first interest. And that's very cool because it seems like being a butcher, you've got to be so precise and it does seem like an art form because you've got to, you've got to get like a certain number amount of meat and cuts from the animal. That way you don't waste anything. So did you kind of translate anything from your art background to your butchery work? Uh, yes. and No. I mean, you know, uh, I, I was a sculptor. I am a, you know, my, my practice is based, my art practice is based in sort of sculpture. Um, and so working with my hands was something I always enjoyed. And, um, so taking a, a raw material, um, and shaping it and, and turning it into, uh, a beautiful object is something that's, I guess, been always a part of what I do. So kind of tell me how, how the whole process works from taking the animal, processing it, and then turning it into, for example, sausage or bacon. So how does that whole process kind of work for you? Oh, well, it depends on the situation. So uh, when I'm at work, when, I, when I'm uh, at Raven and Boar, uh, we, we make USDA uh, inspected products. So that means um, Raven and Boar, Ruby and her husband Sather, they raise the pigs. And then when those pigs are ready, you know, come to wait and are ready to go, they are loaded up and they're brought to the slaughterhouse, which is uh, about uh, 15 minutes away from the farm. Uh, the pigs are then slaughtered there at the USDA inspected slaughterhouse. And then the next day they come to the plant where we do all the processing. So the pig at that point has been uh, slaughtered and eviscerated. And I then um, 
take the whole pig and break it down into different cuts and, um, and trim and take that trim and then make things like sausage and pate and riettes. Um, but when I'm doing roving butcher work, sometimes that involves me going to a farm. Um, I slaughter the pig myself. Um, and then we try to let it hang for at least a couple of days up to a week. And then I'll come back and, and do the butchery. Uh, but that's, that meat then is, is not USDA inspected. So it's only legally, uh, it can't be resold or anything. So it's just consumed by the farmer or homesteader or whoever's, you know, hired me to do that work. Okay. That's interesting. I was wondering kind of how that would work. Um, so what about the different cut types of cuts on a, on a pig you can get? I know, for example, like the pork bellies where bacon comes from in the Boston butt is actually not on the butt mm. of the pig. It's actually on the shoulder. So what are some example cuts and where do all the cuts kind of come <laughs> from on the pig? Sure. Uh, that's a great question. I mean, uh, you know, the, one of the great things about butchering is there are a million different options. So you, if, if you do whole animal butchery, the, like what I do, you have a whole animal, so you can really do anything you want. There are of course standard cuts uh, in America and the, those standard cuts change throughout the world, which is something that's really cool. And it's fun to explore and learn more about those cuts. I always, you know, when I'm traveling abroad, I always like to go to a butcher shop and see, uh, what they have in the case and try to figure out, you know, if I can, where that cut might've come from or uh, how they fabricated that. But, uh, you know, at, when I'm doing my work at Raven Board, you know, we, the shoulders almost always go to, um, to trim to, to be turned into sausage or pate. Um, and so the shoulder consists of the Boston butt, as you mentioned, confusingly is from the shoulder. And the picnic ham, also confusing since it's called a ham, is, is the lower part of the shoulder. Um, and then uh, the, the center cuts would be the belly and the loin and rib section. And though the loin and rib section, these days, more often than not, I'm cutting uh, rib roast and boneless loin roast. Since it's a colder weather here in New England, um, more people are interested in roast. And during the summer, I cut most of those into pork chops. Um, the belly, then either we will, I take off the spare ribs and I like to, something we do at Raven Boar, which I really love, which is not that common in America, but it would be more common, uh, say if you were in maybe, uh, Central America or in Spain or something is we remove the flank, uh, which is a cut most people are familiar with in terms of beef. Um, and then we remove, uh, the secreto, which is a really wonderful cut on the belly. And then the rest stays on the belly and we will either turn that into bacon, smoked riettes, or something we love doing at Raven Boar. And it's particularly one of my favorite things to do is we make porchetta roast out of them. So I sort of butterfly open the belly um, and then put spices and herbs down and, and roll it back up and tie it into a roast. Um, and then the, uh, the back end of the pig, the, the hind leg, the ham, I trim out and that either will go to sausage or, um, uh, you know, we'll make some ham hocks or, uh, some, some boneless roast from that. Okay. Very neat. Now, how many, um, for example, like how many pork chops can you get on a pig? And I know that kind of varies on how big the pig is. So how does that whole process work? Like, how do you figure out how many cuts you can get from that exact animal? Uh, again, it's completely uh, subjective. It, 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 it's a matter of how you choose to cut the, the pig. So um, if you cut thick two inch chops, you're going to get 
a lot less chops than if you cut like half inch chops, you know? Um, and uh, we at, at Raven Boar, we tend to uh, cut along the ribs. So each rib chop has its own rib. So those chops tend to be about an inch to an inch and a half, depending on how big the pig is. Uh, at Raven Boar, they tend to raise their pigs bigger than most people. So, you know, when we talk, refer to a market weight pig, Generally speaking, you're talking about a pig that's finishing at between 200 and 220 pounds. Uh, but Raven Boar, they like to raise the pigs up to, you know, 300, 350 pounds. So the chops are a lot bigger than what uh, most American consumers are used to seeing. Uh, so we generally cut about uh, 10, uh, 10 pork chops from, from the uh, loin and rib section. Uh, but that's just how we do it there. And, and you can, there's no right or wrong way to do the chops. Okay. Gotcha. I'm following you. That kind of makes sense. Uh, so what are your favorite cuts of meat on, on, on the pig to cook? And we'll kind of get into this whenever we talk about your book, Smokehouse Handbook, but what's your favorite cut on a, on a pig to cook and eat? Uh, you know, I, I almost always say the Boston butt. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that. It, I love it because it's got incredible flavor. It's got a, a really, the sort of, in my mind, the perfect fat to lean ratio if the pig's being raised the right way, which is about 70% uh, lean, 30% fat. Um, and that's part of why the uh, Boston butt's so versatile. So that ratio is the ideal ratio for, for instance, for making sausage. Uh, but also that amount of fat is what makes it so good to braise. That and the fact that the, Shoulder is a very um, worked muscle. So, you know, muscle use is uh, directly connected to both flavor and tenderness. And so if you imagine a pig uh, in its daily life out uh, on pasture or in the woods, walking around, eating all day, think about the, the, the front legs of the pig moving all the time, its head going up and down, that's constantly working the shoulder. All that work is creating a lot of flavor in the shoulder, but it's also cre creating a lot of connective tissue, which is what makes the shoulder a tougher cut. But it's also what can make the shoulder so great if used properly. So one way of dealing with the toughness of the cut of the shoulder would be is to grind it and make sausage, and the grinding process uh, tenderizes it, right? But the other thing you can do is to slow cook the shoulder. Uh, and when you slow cook it, you know, at a, at a low temperature, 300 degrees, 250 degrees, 200 degrees, um, the connective tissue is slowly breaks down and turns into gelatin, which is, uh, which keeps the, the shoulder nice and moist and gives the shoulder when it's properly cooked, that amazing sort of, uh, unctuous, uh, texture and, and, and because the shoulder so worked, it also has that incredible flavor. Um, which is, you know, why pulled pork, you know, classic smoked pork shoulder tastes the way it does. Or, you know, I love to braise the pork shoulder in something like cider or really traditional old Italian recipe of actually braising it in milk with some juniper berries and bay leaves. Uh, so, but the other thing you can do is like during the summer, you can cut the shoulder really thin. And, and I mean like, you know, a quarter of an inch thick. And then marinate it. I love to do sort of a Thai style. So marinate it in like some fish sauce and um, fresh cilantro and uh, maybe some lemongrass and some sugar. And then just throw it on the grill. And it has some toothiness, you know, some bite to it. But it also has that incredible flavor and all that fat melts and caramelizes on the grill. 
So it's just, it, it's really versatile and uh, it just has so much great flavor. Man, you're making me really hungry. I'm going to have to go out and get some kind of pork tonight, like some yeah. bacon or something. That all sounds really good. Uh, kind of going along those lines, what are some underrated cuts of meat on the pig that you kind of see that you try to teach people how to cook and teach people that this is a, a not well-known cut, but it's really, really good and they should try and, and experiment with it? Oh, that's a great question. Um, so I, I guess I have a, quite a few answers to that, but I would say just like, because it's cold where I live right now, that's where my mind is. And so I really love pork shank. Um, and it, it's similar, you know, it's for the same reasons I love the shoulder. It, the pork shank has a ton of connective tissue, but also a ton of flavor. And so I love to just slow cook that, braise that. You know, I'll often do sort of a Italian sort of cacciatore style, so tomato sauce and lots of mushrooms and uh, and just, you know, maybe some some thyme or bay leaves and uh, slow cook that and it, it just melts and falls apart. And, you know, I know so many farmers who are just stuck with tons of shanks and uh, it's so frustrating for them and it's frustrating for me because I know how great it tastes and just not enough people think of that as something to do during the winter. Um, similarly, another cut, which is probably harder to find, but if you can find it, I really recommend using is both the jowl and the cheek. So the jowl is essentially what it sounds like the jowl of the pig and the cheek would is on the inside of the jowl and it's the cheek muscle. Um, and of course, because pigs eat so much that those, both those muscles, especially the cheek muscle gets a ton of use and is a ton of connective tissue. It's fairly lean, but it, it has an incredible texture and flavor when it's slow cooked. And the jowl um, is, is really fatty with this streak of lean in it. And if that's slow cooked, it's really rich, but you can cut it with some acid. So, you know, cook, braise it in like cider or one of my favorite dishes I had when I was in Italy last time was, was slow cooked in balsamic vinegar. Um, and so that, that's just really fun and exciting and unusual. Also, some farmers uh, make bacon from the jowl. They either call jowl bacon or face bacon, and that's really great. Um, but, but the other cuts are the ones I mentioned earlier. So some of those uh, thin steaks that you can get from the belly section of the pig. And like, like I said, it's very, not many people cut those in the steaks. But they're really great, especially in the summer, because they grill up really quickly, or you could cook them inside on the pan if you want. They have a lot of great flavor um, and a really nice texture. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, I've heard more and more people kind of starting to use um, pork cheeks. And it's very interesting to kind of watch these celebrity chefs use those ingredients, like for example, on Chopped, where they use it and they turn it into something beautiful that you never really would have thought that that ingredient could have gone into. So those are all really good um, um, cuts that you kind of recommended. I noticed that you also do um, some lamb butchery. So is that process any different? Are there any yes. different cuts of meat that you get on a lamb, for example, as you do with pork? Uh, you know, really good question. Not, not really, you know, uh, all four legged animal animals get cut more or less the same way. You know, lambs are smaller than pigs and leaner. So the cuts sort of turn out slightly differently and, and can be cooked differently. Again, with, with lamb, my, my favorite cuts are the shoulder and the shanks. Um, I, I, I'm Jewish. And so for the various Jewish holidays, particularly Passover and Rosh Hashanah, I really love to, um, uh, cook either a leg of lamb or or a lamb shoulder um, and lamb's really fun to work with because um, because of the size 
you know, it's, it's easy and quick to sort of cut up. And uh, I love the taste of lamb. You know, not everyone's a big fan of that. Uh, and we have some really good lamb farmers in the area, which, is, which uh, we're really fortunate. Um, so yeah, my, my favorite cuts would be the, the shoulder, the leg, and the shanks. Um, something I loved, <laughs> it's funny, I don't cook it that often, but I love to cut it. It's really satisfying for me to cut, and people always sort of seem so impressed when they see the cut. Is I like to take the whole loin, so not just, you know, you think of a loin chop. That's just half of the loin. Because that's um, the loin is. Uh, this is hard to explain on a on a podcast without visuals, but it, it's the um, it's the meat that is on either side of the uh, spinal column, the the vertebrae uh, on the uh, back half of the lamp, so where the ribs end all the way to the hip bone. And so, if you take that whole section, so the uh, a loin chop would be that that section and you, you would split the, the vertebrae down the middle. And so you have your lamb chops. So imagine the lamb chops sort of glued back together. So you have the whole spinal column. I like to debone that whole thing, take, remove the, the vertebrae. And so that leaves you um, the, the loin and the tenderloin and then thin little fat gap. And I like to tie that into a nice round roast. It's, we call it a saddle roast. Um, and it's just really beautiful looking. And for me, it's really fun to cut because it's a lot of sort of intricate knife work. Um, it requires a lot of patience and it just looks so beautiful. That's really neat. Now, lamb meat is a little bit darker than pork, right? It's a little bit darker. And is it a little bit darker than beef in color? Uh, you know, it, it, it just depends on the breed and the way it was raised, the, the feed. But generally speaking, lamb is a, a deeper color, certainly than pork, although uh, well-raised pork, and again, depending on the breed, should have a darker color. It shouldn't be pale, it should, should be a richer red. But lamb tends to be a more purple color, um, and, and beef tends to be a more deep red color. Yeah, that's true. Okay, makes sense. Um, now, going on, you were talking about feed a little bit. I know that there, most um, livestock is either like grain-fed or grass-fed, then you've got the whole grain-finished or grass-finished. So have you noticed um, kind of a quality difference between the two feeding types, like in your butchery work? Have you noticed a difference in the meat? Uh, there's no question that there's a difference between 100% grass-fed, grass-fed and grain-finished and grain-finished. Um, I am someone, and, and uh, I, so I, I <laughs> that, that it's a complicated question. So I'm someone who is very uh, hardcore, strict about the idea of eating grass-fed animals. Um, and I have a lot of different reasons for that. One, um, uh, both uh, lamb and beef are ruminants, which um, is a way has to do with their digestive system. They, they have four stomachs. And the reason they have four stomachs is because they're supposed to be eating grass. Um, and the four stomachs allows them to digest and process that grass. And so it's actually not healthy for the, um, the, the animals to be given a grain diet. Uh, the reason uh, they're given a grain diet in, in uh, commercial and, and conventional meat is because it's uh, easier to confine the an animals in a close area and just feed them grain and, and they'll fatten up quicker. And what you'll notice with grain-fed um, beef and lamb is that it has um, uh, maybe a slightly butterier, butty, but, butterier, butterier flavor, uh, 
but less interesting flavor, I think. Um, and it's certainly more mild, less, uh, you know, gamey, I suppose you would say. Um, but I like the more intense uh, flavors of grass-fed beef and lamb. Um, and I like the nuance of the differences. You know, so uh, uh, lamb that is slaughtered in the spring will have a different flavor than the lamb slaughtered in the fall because of the different quality of grass they're feeding. Um, and similarly with pigs, pigs are omnivores. They're, they're actually quite like us. And I much rather have a pig that's being raised outdoors and is having a varied diet. So, you know, most pig farmers feed their pigs grain, but a good pig farmer is also letting them forage for their own food. And so whether that's in a pasture and they're digging up, eating some grass and digging up roots and eating grubs or in the woods and eating acorns and, um, you know, uh, uh, beech nuts and what, whatever else that are finding on the ground, that creates a much uh, more interesting flavor. Um, and also there are people who like to uh, supplement their pig's feeds with dairy or whey or um, spent grain from breweries. And I, I think all that is really great. And again, you know, creates nuance in the flavor and changes the flavor. Um, so I, I really, I, I'm a big proponent of eating pasture-raised animals and grass-fed uh, beef and lamb. And I, I try really hard uh, to stay away from um, a grain, you know, grain-fed beef and lamb or, or uh, you know, conventional meat in general. Okay, all, all very interesting. Um, I, I've always been wondered about how the quality difference is with grass-fed and grass-finished, or I'm sorry, grass-fed and grain-fed. Um, so some very good points you're talking about. Um, what about aged meat? I'm always curious about how aged meat works and how the flavor difference is. It's always interesting to kind of see uh, like aged beef, for example, and how dark it gets. So how exactly does aged, aged meat kind of, how does, it, how does aging the meat impact the flavor? And how does that whole process work where you can age it effectively? Right. So this is something I love to talk about. So I'm really glad you asked. And it actually ties into what we were just talking about. Uh, so you can age most meat, um, but mostly when we're talking about aged meat, we, we associate that with beef. Um, but of course, cured meats like prosciuttos and, and salamis and stuff, that, that's aged uh, to, for an even longer time than aged beef. It's just aged with the uh, addition of curing salt and table salt. But, um, you know, aging meat is essentially uh, the process of controlling, controlling rot, right? Um, the, as soon as the animal's dead, the, the, the meat is decaying. And it's about harnessing that to, to our advantage and controlling it and, and making sure it doesn't go too far. But even that is subjective. You know, there, there are other, in other places in the world, they will age meat much longer than we do. And, it, you know, and, and they love that. But um, what, what's happening is uh, the animal is slaughtered and then all the uh, in, internal regulatory systems that, that are functioning when animal is alive are shut off. And uh, so the first thing that happens once the animal is dead is it starts to go through rigor mortis. And that's really important for the quality of meat to, to let that process complete. And so for a typical lamb, that that's, process takes about 24 hours. For a pig, it can take two to three days, depending on the size. For beef, it can take up to two weeks, which is why often beef is hung or aged for a minimum of two weeks before it's even broken down into cuts. 
So that's the first step. But then what's happening during that process is uh, water is naturally evaporating from the body. So, so the water is, um, is either dripping out or evaporating in the uh, walk-in refrigerator where the, the carcass is being hung. Um, so what, what's happening then is as more and more water evaporates, the flavor becomes more and more concentrated, right? Like, just like anything, it, it's less watery. So it has more, more intense flavor. The third thing that's happening is um, uh, the lactic acid in the body, uh, in the carcass, spikes once it's um, killed. And there's nothing stopping the lactic acid production. That acid is, uh, starts to break down the myosin and the proteins in the, in the cells of the animal. And uh, over time, they're broken down into peptides. And peptides are really the flavor of the animal. And so uh, as the protein is being broken down, these more interesting flavors are being released. On top of that, the proteins are being broken down, so the meat is becoming more and more tender. Uh, And that's one of the reasons, besides sort of the environmental uh, and ethical reasons for for preferring grass-fed and pastured animals, is that there's actually, I think, a quality reason to prefer um, pastured and grass-fed animals because they have a much more varied diet, those peptides, the flavors that, that are revealed through the aging process are much more interesting. Um, so typically speaking with beef, for instance, that's aged anywhere from two weeks up to you know, 90 days or 120 days. But you can go more extreme. So that one of my favorite chefs, uh, Magnus Nilsson, who's a chef in Northern Sweden, he'll take the whole round, which is the hind, uh, the hind leg of, of a beef, and he'll hang it in his basement for uh, months and months and months. Now, I haven't gone to his restaurant, unfortunately, but the way he describes the finished product is he says it's much more akin to um, blue cheese than it is to a steak. And I think that sounds amazing. Um, I've also, I've experimented with aging um, mutton. And so mutton is an adult lamb. Technically, a lamb is um, a sheep that's under a year old. A haga is from a year to two years old, and two years on plus is a mutton. And so I worked with a, one of my favorite farms in the area, Kinderhook Farm. They started experimenting raising mutton, and they, they asked me what were different things they could do with mutton. And so we tried aging it like we would age beef. We kept it in the walk-in for, for a month. And again, the flavors that came out of it were amazing. Um, and then pork, I like to hang my pork, like if I have my own way, um, up for at least a week and again it's just the same thing You're, you the, the flavor gets more intense um and the meat becomes a little more tender um and i, I love experimenting and pushing the boundaries of, of uh, what you can do with aging meat man that all sounds really neat yeah i've always wondered how it kind of the whole process of it and i've always wondered like how it's healthy but it makes sense because you've got to get the water out of the meat to what to kill off all the bacteria is that right yeah so so water is where the dangerous bacteria grow and so that's you know, the, the extreme end of aging, curing meat, that, that, that's what the whole process is about, is in order to make that meat safe, you're drawing out all the, all, all, as much moisture as you can. And so when you're uh, dry curing uh, pork, what you start when you have the cut, and then you, um, you, you cover that in, in salt and in spices and herbs. And generally speaking, you're using two different kinds of salt. So you're going to use uh, table salt, which is sodium chloride, uh, which is, you know, we all have that in our kitchen and use it. And 
um, the salt naturally th through the process of osmosis draws moisture out. Um, and then we also use curing salt, which is uh, uh, sodium nitrate. And the, that also is drawing moisture out, but it's also uh, the, when it makes contact with the hemoglobin in, in the cells of the meat, um, it, the nitrate's breaking down. And so uh, it, it bonds with the oxygen in the, in the, um, in the blood cells there and stops the blood from oxidizing, which is also help, helping preserve the meat and helping it from uh, becoming rotten and, and staying, uh, staying safe to eat. Um, it also you know, kill, uh, makes it an inhospitable environment for things like listeria or botulism. Okay, okay, I've always wondered about that. Now, what about your, you've, you said you've done a lot of educational work, like workshops, um, demos. What has been, what, what has that been like to kind of be up close and personal with consumers and with um, kind of individuals that are kind of learning on how the butchery process works? So what is that educational, what has that educational work been like for you? Uh, I love it. It's honestly my favorite thing to do. If, uh, if I could, I would only, you know, if I could, uh, Make make a career out of it. You make enough money uh, from it. I would only do educational work. Uh, it's deeply satisfying and inspiring and exciting. Um, it, it's just a really wonderful experience. You know, I never. Uh, I come from a family of educators. Uh, my mom's a professor, and not only a professor, but she's a professor of education. Um, my grandmother. Has helped start several schools in her life. My great grandmother started several schools in her life, so it's a long tradition in my family. But I never expected to find myself in the role of an educator. Uh, and I sort of stumbled into it through my work as you know by starting the Roving Butcher and being asked to do it. And I just it's the most wonderful experience. That's really neat. I'm glad it's such a cool experience for you. Have you um, have you had any like aha moments, or I mean, have you have you witnessed any aha moments with people that you're demonstrating with? Yeah, all the time. I mean, that, that's part of what's so um, exciting and inspiring about it. So, uh, you know, people don't understand how something works and, and then you explain it to them and you can see the sort of gears click and then I'll hear back from them, you know, maybe the next day or maybe a year later saying, oh, you know, I, I, this year we slaughtered our own animals and we broke it down and I'll get a photo of, of the cuts they made or, you know, some bacon they made. Um, but one of the, you know one of the things that's been really cool for me is it's not unusual for me to have a vegetarian or vegan come to my workshop and they talk to me the reason they want to come is they're thinking about eating meat again and they want to see um, they they feel in order to start eating meat they need to be, feel comfortable with with the process of the animal's life being taken and turned into meat. Um, and I just think that is so cool. And I have a ton of respect for that. And, you know, sometimes I hear from them and they've decided they do want to eat meat. And sometimes they realize, no, they're not comfortable with it. And either way, I just, I, I think it's so admirable to take that step and to, to that they push themselves that way. Um, but yeah, it's fantastic. Uh, you know, I love seeing on social media when some tags me and, and, they're posting uh, something they've made because they've learned how to do it from my workshop or from my book. And it, it, it's a really rewarding experience. That does sound rewarding to kind of see everybody kind of see what goes on with your work. And that's a really cool experience that you've had vegans and um, vegetarians like come to your workshops. And sometimes it turns them back to meat. Sometimes it turns them away. I mean, like you said, like all, 
do credit to them. Like that's very respectable that they are just even open-minded just to kind of see what's going on. And kind of going off of that, have you had any interesting experiences with vegans or people kind of against animal agriculture? Have you had any like run-ins with them or have you had, what experience do you have there? Um, you know, it, not a ton. I, 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 it's not uncommon when um, I'm working with an organization or a farm and we're putting together a workshop and start promoting it where we start to hear from people, you know, through on Facebook or Instagram that, that they're disgusted by what we do and that they're going to come and protest the workshop, but it never, it's in my experience, it's never come to anything. I, I've had a couple times where we expected protesters to come to a workshop and they never show up. Um, you know, I, I care deeply about animal rights. It's, it's an uh, humane treatment of animals. And it's why I do the work I do, because I, I think animals should be treated properly and with respect. Um, you know, it's, I never take an animal, animal's life lightly. Um, and it's always a very difficult and upsetting experience, no matter how many times I do it. Um, and part of the reason I do it is because I feel I know how to do it properly and with respect. And I rather do that than uh, have someone else do it who, who doesn't know how to do it properly or who doesn't bring the proper amount of respect to that, to that situation. It, I, you know, it, it's, uh, although I'm not religious myself, it's, I, over the years, I've become more and more, um, I've had interested and engaged with ritual slaughter, uh, whether it's halal or kosher slaughter, because the, the premise of that is just that, is that it is a very heavy act. And so um, it should be done with great respect. And in those traditions, it involves um, praying and acknowledgement to God, something I don't believe in, but, but the general idea of, of bringing solemnity and, and understanding that, that the, that this is bigger than me and that this animal is making sacrifice so that people can eat is, is important to me. Um, I was just, uh, I just gave a talk at, uh, Hancock Shaker Village, which is one of the oldest Shaker communities in the country. And the director there was telling me that uh, the Shakers believed you should never eat an animal that you didn't love. And I, I very much believe that. I mean, I, I'm someone uh, who actually grew up eating the animals um, that, I, that I knew. So um, uh, our, our neighbor and uh, a woman who I, I refer to as my other mother, very instrumental in, in raising me, and uh, a childhood friend of my dad's, my mom's best friend, she, she, she and her partner have a, a small sort of subsistence homestead or subsistence farm, and they raise uh, beef and pigs every year for, for themselves and friends and neighbors. And so I spent my summers um, riding the cows and playing with the pigs, and then I spent my winters eating them. And each year, you know, it would, we, we, one year it would be we're eating Buster Burgers, the next year it might be Sam Pork Chops. Um, and that seemed normal to me, not just normal, but that seemed like the right way to do it. Um, and I still believe that. Very cool. And that kind of backs up the thought that I have that people in your position have more respect for the animal and more, they have a better knowledge of what to do with the animal and how the animals are, are, are grown and kind of their whole life process than, than a lot of people that are against animal agriculture. And that, that's really cool to kind of hear that you, you respect the animal, you know how to take care of them. And I mean, plus even with your book, like it kind of shows that you're dedicated to making sure that that animal's life was worth it, that you're going to treat the meat um, to the best of your ability and to cook it to where it's kind of showcasing, I don't know, kind of the, the highlights of that animal. So that's all really cool to hear. Um, 
kind of going off of that. So you've got a book, it's called Smokehouse Handbook, which is, it sounds really cool. It's all about, um, I have your Instagram up right here or your website and it's all about kind of how to cook meat, how to cook fish, how to cook vegetables. So how did that whole process work about coming up with the idea and what, what kind of inspired you to write it and what's the whole book about? So the book is about smoking, you know, primarily focuses on meat, um, but also talks about uh, vegetables and, um, and it's a combination of how to smoke meat, but also how to, how to build your own smoker. Um, and so, uh, when I was, you know, still living in New York city, living in Brooklyn before I was a professional butcher, I bought a stovetop smoker, which seemed sort of absurd at the time, but I just, I had been eyeing it for months and I just finally broke down and bought it. Um, and the first thing I did is I smoked, uh, a whole chicken. Um, and you know, it was such an exciting process and I, I messed it up. I didn't fully cook the chicken legs, but um, even though I, I messed it up, I still was so hooked on the process. And so I continued to sort of experiment with smoking uh, in my small New York City apartment, um, eventually building my way up to smoking a whole ham and uh, for a Christmaca party, an annual Christmaca party my uh, my wife and I used to throw, um, which was, a uh, we'd have ham and latkes. Um, and then uh, I moved back to uh, the land I grew up on in uh, rural Massachusetts. And um, I knew I wanted to build a smokehouse. Um, and at that point I was a professional butcher. And so my brother, Will, he's a, um, a woodworker and a natural builder. Um, and he had built at that point quite a few uh, cob ovens. And we started to talk about what kind of smokehouse we want. I wanted to build, and and you know, talk to him about different ideas of how we could build that. And I wanted to build a uh, smokehouse in which I could both hot smoke and cold smoke. So hot smoking is uh, you know like your classic barbecue or uh, you know smoked trout or um, uh, kielbasa or. Uh, you know, most bacon is hot smoked and cold smoked. So the, typically that's like 175 degrees to 275 degrees Fahrenheit. And cold smoking is when you smoke something under 90 degrees, you know, the, the smoking temperature is under 90 degrees. And so that uh, tends to be sort of dry cured meats like speck or uh, smoked salami. Um, bacon can be cold smoked uh, or like lox smoked salmon. Um, and uh, we, we looked at a couple different books and, and we had a hard time finding anything that had really great information on how to do what we wanted to do. And so we spent the next two years, well, really my brother spent the next two years building, building and rebuilding it. And together we would come back and be like, okay, well, this isn't working. How do we, how do we redesign that? Uh, and after two years, we finally figured it out and it, it's worked really beautifully. Um, and that was really exciting. And so we started, I started smoking lots of different things. Um, and, uh, I was doing a two day workshop, uh, at a, at a farm. Um, and it was, uh, what I call my pig to prosciutto workshop. So the first day we slaughtered the pig and then, um, the next day we broke it down into various, uh, cuts and then put, all the cuts under cure. And as part of that, we did some smoking and I talked about my smokehouse and, and that journey 
of figuring out how to build it and, and learning how to smoke properly. And uh, there was a book editor at, at the workshop and she contacted me afterwards and asked me if I would be interested in writing a book about it. And um, I had always had it in my, I love writing um, and I love teaching. And so I had always had it in my mind that I would love to, someday to write a book. Um, and uh, I had never thought about writing a book specifically about smoking in my, my smokehouse. Uh, but when she suggested it, I said, of course. All right. That's right up my alley. That sounds so cool because this Christmas I'm trying to ask my wife to get me um, a pit barrel smoker. So I might have to hold that off and look at your oh, book cool. on how to create your own smoker. That's really neat. So um, c- can you briefly kind of explain to us the history of barbecue in the United States? I mean, I know it's kind of traces its origins mm-hmm. to Texas, Kansas City, North Carolina, South Carolina. Everybody kind of has their own spin on it. So what have you kind of learned about the history of barbecue and even the history of smoking here in the U.S. Sure. So, I mean, uh, just to start uh, with a bigger picture, you know, smoking uh, has smoking meat and smoking food has existed for thousands of years. Um, and at its roots, it's a form of preservation of, of keeping meat for, for longer, for preserving it. Um, and throughout the world, you find different smoking traditions. Um, and those traditions really rep- are, represent the place. Um, so for instance, in West Africa, you find, you know, like in Senegal, you find um, a lot of fish, you know, it's a coastal country that's smoked um, over millet grass, which is a, one of the most common crops in that area. Um, in uh, England, it's, it's fattier fish, or, or in Scandinavia, and throughout Northern Europe, it's fatty fish like salmon or um, uh, you know, mackerel that's smoked over beech or poplar, the the kind or oak, the kind of trees that you find in those areas. Um, in China, it's uh, duck that's smoked over rice and tea leaves, and in um, Central America, it's um, uh, goat or or pork that's uh, smoked um, in in corn husks or maguey leaves. Um, and so I just, I, I love that part of, of smoking that it really, the, the traditional forms of smoking in any given place really tell you a lot about that region and same with barbecue. I mean, I, I say, and I'm not the only one who says this, but barbecue to me is the most quintessential American cuisine because it really tells you the history of, of how America was formed. So, um, when the Spaniards first came over to America, they brought with them, um, Livestock. They brought pigs and cows with them, the two sort of central meats and barbecue. When they when they came here, what they um, found was a a tradition among, uh, especially like uh, the Native um, Caribbean uh, people and also Native Americans in, in like Florida and stuff. This tradition of cooking meat slowly over um, over a, a structure made out of sticks and those the structure of sticks would slowly burn, very slowly burn, and so slowly cook the meat at a low temperature, but also infused it with meat, with, with the smoky flavor. Um, and the, one of the words for that is barbecue. And then on top of that, you have uh, the slave trade. And that slave trade introduced things like yams and slow-cooked greens and sort of 
a lot of the accoutrements or side dishes that we associate with uh, traditional barbecue. And so when you look at barbecue, it's this, it's this combination of different cultures of, of Spanish, West African, and Native American traditions coming together. And, uh, you know, it, it's, a, it's an ugly history, but it is the history of America. And uh, out of that ugly history is, is something that's really beautiful and wonderful, which is barbecue. And then, as you say, as you look throughout the, the country, um, you, you see these different barbecue tr traditions, and those represent the sort of microcultures of those areas. So if you start in the Carolinas, where it's woody hills filled with uh, you know, trees like oak and cherry, and mostly it's pork, it's, you know, there's not a lot of uh, open grassland to raise beef. So that's why, where you have whole hog uh, pork barbecue that's often cooked over wood like cherry and apple. And as you continue further west, you see more beef introduced as there is more open land for raising, me, raising beef, but also the kind of wood that you're smoking over changes because the landscape, the, the ecology is changing. And so there are different kinds of trees available to be smoking over. So when you get to Texas, you have you know, things cooked over mesquite, hickory, peach wood, and also it's mostly beef. My, so my personal favorite style barbecue is, is Texas, you know, hill country barbecue. The, to me, there's nothing better than a well um, smoked brisket. I also love, you know, traditional Texas hot links. But, I, you know, I just, where, wherever I am, I love, you know, exploring that um, barbecue tradition. So like the one that's most, uh, is newest to me is Chicago barbecue. Um, the Chicago barbecue came with, from the Great Migration um, you know, after, after Reconstruction, when a, when a lot of uh, Southern Black people moved into sort of north, northern cities, they brought that, those barbecue traditions with them. But in Chicago, for various reasons, they had to a, a, adjust that. And so out of that came Chicago barbecue. And that's often rib tips, which, um, you know, Chicago for many years was one of the biggest meat processing centers in the country. Rib tips were sort of the throwaway, the scraps, right? And uh, I actually think rib tips are one of the best things to eat. But so Chicago barbecue, they, they would take those rib tips since the ribs were then being sent out all over the country. And that's sort of one of the primary cuts used. Okay, very neat. Now, in the book, you write down, you have some of your recipes. So what are some of your favorite barbecue recipes that you have in the book? No, I, in the book, I, I try not to focus too much on barbecue just because there are so many great books about barbecue and uh, I wanted to explore all the different traditions throughout barbecue. So I have some really sort of basic barbecue recipes, nothing that I would uh, brag about only because they're, they're meant to be really basic and classic. But one of the, I guess what I do, you know, what I'm proud of and what I like about the book is I try to uh, encourage readers to experiment with different kinds of rubs. So like, for instance, a, a classic, you know, your, your traditional barbecue rub is a combination of, it's usually about one-to-one -one, uh, salt to black pepper, and then you might have like a little paprika and cayenne and maybe some garlic pepper, gar garlic powder or onion powder. Um, and that's pretty standard barbecue rub. You know, different people will have different var variations on, on the ratios. Um, maybe some people put in like a little coriander or cumin, but that's pretty standard, the, those, that combination. And uh, so I have a, a part in the a section in the book, in the recipe section, 
about thinking about outside of that sort of traditional box for, for uh, rubs and barbecue and to start to think about rubs inspired by other cuisines. So uh, I have a rub that sort of, I personally, two of my favorite cuisines are uh, Northern Thai and Sichuan. And so I have two rubs that are inspired by those, those cooking traditions. And uh, in the book, I talk about how once you understand the basics of what a good rub is and, and sort of how the ratios work and how you want more or less a one-to-one -one ratio of salt to, to pepper and then um, a certain amount of herbs and spices, then to look at a recipe, you know, grab your favorite, if you love Thai food, your favorite Thai recipe and look at the spices that are used in that and figure out how to, and look at the ratios of those, those spices and herbs and how you can incorporate those into your own rub. And so I, I that's, one of the ideas of the book is to, to give people the fundamentals and the basic understanding of how things work so that you can then go off and explore and, and push the boundaries yourself. All really good advice. I really haven't barbecued a lot, but I'm trying to get more and more into it because the quality of the meat is just delicious. I had a friend of ours make some, some burnt ends a few weeks ago, and that was absolutely amazing. Mm. So I really enjoyed those. Well, Jake, this has been such a cool conversation. Um, one last question. So I like to ask everybody this question, what their thoughts are on the farmer consumer relationship. So you, you work as a butcher, you're working in a very, a very niche market and you're working with consumers a lot, kind of educating them. So what are your thoughts on the farmer consumer relationship right now? Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, uh, it, I, you know, I got part of the reason I got into being a butcher is, um, I knew I didn't have it in me to be a farmer. My grandfather was a farmer and I saw how hard and brutal that life is. And I, a lot of my closest friends are farmers and I'm just, you know, I'm not strong enough. Uh, uh, and I don't mean physically strong enough. I'm not like psychologically and emotionally strong enough to be a farmer, but uh, what farmers do is so critically important. And so I see my, I, I saw butchering as a way of bridging the gap between the consumer and the farmer and I think that's one of the most important relationships there are is, is uh, helping the consumer understand how to eat and how to eat better. And, you know, like back to the question you were asking me about, like, what are some of my favorite unusual cups? When I'm thinking about that, I try to think about what, what do my, like my friends who, who are livestock farmers, what are the cuts they're stuck with that they wish consumers were buying? And how can I help consumers understand what to do with those cuts? Um, and so it, you know, it's a really, it's a, at its best, it's a wonderful relationship and it's a give and a take the, the butcher or the farmer at the farmer's market is, is, uh, teaching the consumer about how to expand their, their cooking repertoire or, or their taste buds. Um, and, and the consumer is help, you know, is, is allowing the farmer to do their work is supporting them financially. Um, and uh, I think it's one of the most critical relationships and that 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 relationship has been diluted and lost with the industrialization of food. And so it's really exciting to, for me to see that that uh, gap is being bridged again and, and getting smaller. And so the fact that farmers markets are, are becoming so popular and successful throughout the country um, is really exciting for me. And the fact that there are more sort of um, small, you know, for lack of a better word, sort of artisanal food shops, whether it's a whole animal butcher shop or a beautiful cheesemonger shop or, you know, a, a great seafood shop. 
uh, with, with people, you know, craftspeople um, be, behind those counters helping consumers understand what they're selling and what makes uh, the food so special. I, I, I hope that answers your question, sort of a meandering answer to it. But. No, 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 that, that definitely does answer it. Yeah, we're always telling people to kind of buy local whenever you can because, I mean, you're building relationships with those local farmers, you're keeping the money in the local economy. And a lot of people don't think that or realize that they're saving transportation costs because a lot of times you're having to ship in beef from out of state or out of country. And so just sourcing locally is a huge thing. And I totally agree with all your viewpoints. It's very interesting. All right, Jake. Well, yeah. so if people want to learn more about you, if they want to learn about your book, if they want to follow what you're doing, where can they go? Uh, so you can follow me uh, at The Roving Butcher. I'm uh, The Roving Butcher on Instagram and on Facebook. Um, or you can go to my website, therovingbutcher.com. Um, and you can find my books at any books, hopefully any bookstore, uh, or if they don't have it, you can request them to carry it. Well, there you go. Well, Jake Levin, thanks so much for being on. We really appreciate it. I look forward. I'm going to add your book to my Christmas list um, and got to get a lot of really good smoking advice, barbecuing advice, and just all the really good stuff you have in that book. Thanks for this. This was seriously a really good conversation. I was really looking forward to it. Um, we wish you the best of luck and we'll keep in touch. Thank you so much, Trevor. This was wonderful. I really appreciate it.